This is Porch Tales, a Humanities DC show where we get to experience the District of Columbia, from the history to the culture to the arts. In each season, we'll hear from the experts, the doers of DC. So get comfy and maybe grab a few friends as we gather on our porches to learn on a deeper level and celebrate what really shapes our nation's capital. Warning, the following program contains historical discussion and personal recollections of a frank nature. It includes discussion of state violence, lynching, and rape. It also contains brief profanity. Listener discretion is advised. On any given day, about 60,000 people will pass through DC's National Airport. And maybe you've been one of them. Maybe when you were, you passed right by a beautiful black woman and she was working as a sales associate in a Brooks Brothers airport shop, all right? Now, if you went in, then you were probably looking for an expensive suit because that's all they sell. But more likely, you walked right by, never knowing that you were sharing space with an important civil rights, black power, freedom art, uh, freedom fighter, community organizer, UN delegate, anti-apartheid strategist, I mean like a fighter. You would never know that the FBI used to follow her and her friends. You would never know that she's still a fighter. She's this disappeared treasure, a respected elder, a woman who's devoted to, to these ideals justice, freedom, dignity for black people, all people, you know, all powers of the people, right? And if I told you all of this, you would probably find it hard to believe, <laughs> but it's all true. This is good. This is good. Okay, so I'm gonna get you to tell me more about growing up in Newsom Park in a second, but I realized that we didn't do something really important here, which is um, for me to ask you, what is your name? Oh, oh Lord. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you want me to go to my given name? I want name. you to, to tell me the name that you feel at home with, and I want you to tell me why. Okay. I feel at home with Sister Coco. Welcome to Humanities DC's Porch Tales. I'm Professor Debus, historian and guest executive producer for this podcast's inaugural season. In six episodes, journey with me and DJ Influence on an exploration of Black freedom struggles as seen through the life and perspectives of Sister Coco. Listen as she crosses paths with the likes of Stokely Carmichael, Bobby Seale, 
Afeni and Tupac Shakur, Miriam Makiba, and battles FBI agents, spies, and racists. It's deep. I hope you'll be encouraged by this season to listen to the stories of other everyday people around you because you just might discover a freedom fighter next door. And now, The Disappearing of Sister Coco, episode one, The Making of a Freedom Fighter. My, my, my life is kind of, it's kind of not normal. <laughs> she, is, she is what I call unsung, and we talk about that all the time, that they, they get as many licks as everybody else, they suffer the same kinds of... Uh, that they have to make the same kind of sacrifices, suffering, the indignities and all that kind of stuff. I have to think about things sometimes in terms of, you know, what was she really doing? You know, like, I remember all kinds of, like I've read documents recently that the FBI had on her. And I'm like, damn, oh, you were, oh. Oh, so that's why I didn't get the job. Okay, it makes perfect sense now. Oh, you were a badass, Sister Coco. Okay, so to understand the disappearing of Sister Coco, I think we first have to understand how she's hidden. So I'll start there. And I'll tell you the story of how I came to know her. I met her for the first time in the fall of 2017 and she agreed to share her experience of April 4th, 1968, which if you know anything about national history in the United States, you know that that was the day that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee and the day that numerous cities in the nation went up in flames all right like black folks just were enraged and heartbroken and so she told the story of her experiences that night good evening the reverend dr martin luther king 39 years old and a nobel peace prize winner and the leader of the nonviolent civil rights movement in the United States was assassinated in Memphis tonight. A sniper's bullet cut down Dr. King as he stood on a hotel balcony in Memphis. Within an hour, Dr. King was dead. That happened at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. So the initial, after the shock, of course, and uh, our prayers and our thoughts for Dr. King and his family, um, then it, it began to be on the street to try to contain um, not people's anger, but to try to get people to safety. Sister Coco told these stories to a crowd of folks, actually, for the DC Historical Society. And I knew 
just from that experience that I had to speak with her again. So I asked her to do an oral history with me and to my great luck, she agreed. We're gonna fast forward here because no time for, for the backstory. Uh, Miss Coco agreed to meet with me to do the interview. I had all of my stuff, right? I had my camera ready. I had a recorder and a backup recorder. I was ready to to talk and to, to capture it all. But when she arrived, she asked almost gingerly if I would be okay with just talking. No recording, just talking. And of course I said yes, although in my mind I was like, oh man, like, I, I don't want to miss anything. But I just asked, would it be okay if I took notes? And she agreed. And she proceeded to tell me the story of her life. And I was floored. And I just was, I knew that people needed to know who she was. When, when people saw her on the streets, they needed to know. Band of brothers and sisters of Circle of Trust. That's what we were. And she was that and has been that ever since. Miss Coco, why would Dr. Cleveland Sellers say this about you? Why would he say that you were the truth, that you were you were there, you were in the you were in it, right? When when it comes to black freedom movement activism in this country, but not even just this country. Why would he say that? Why would he give you like that stamp and, and that high of an endorsement? He didn't just say, oh yeah, she was around. He didn't say that at all, you know? So what do you think? So I don't know. I don't know. I've always tried to be uh, a person who the words in the community was get in where you fit in. But I've always tried to be the person who could help out if I could help out. And in a way, it's getting in where I fit in. But uh, if I can be of any service, I used to say that all the time. If I can be of any service to me, just let me know. Uh, just let me know. The thing about Sister Coco is she is exceedingly humble about her contributions to the movement. Almost humble to a fault. She'll describe herself as just helping as opposed to being a central figure in Stokely Carmichael's inner circle, a key organizer, a key, a key executor of plans. She she might call herself his executive assistant or even his secretary, but trust and believe she was doing more than opening letters. People, I never asked for mine, but many people through the Freedom of Information Act asked for copies of their files, but all they got was pages and pages were pages and pages of redacted sheets, nothing. Maybe five or six words and then black lines, black marks. So I said, why would I even bother to ask for mine? 
So we've established that Sister Coco is very humble, and this is why you won't see too many interviews where she's loudly proclaiming these accomplishments of her life. And it's because she saw the work that she was doing as a contribution to a larger movement. It wasn't about her, and she didn't think about it centering herself. It was about doing the work of organizing, doing the work of ensuring that Black people in the United States and the diaspora had opportunities to become their full selves, that their basic needs were taken care of, and that they could actualize themselves as full human beings. Hello, hello. Hi, how are you? Wonderful. I was trying to finish the call. I said, oh, I hope she doesn't hang up. Oh, like no, it. no, no. Line <laughs> Do you want me to call you back? Are you finished with that call? No, 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 no. Okay. No, no, no I finished. It's just that sometimes the line doesn't clear mm -hmm. as soon as you finish talking. Yeah, yeah, I know so what you mean. How are you today, dear? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I was excited to get that message from you this morning because I was like, I, I, I bet <laughs> that she's here somewhere in this crowd. I just don't know. You know. Miss Vera, Vera has a same, no, she has a photo of that event and it shows me leaning over talking to Stokely. Perfect. That's great. <laughs> that is great. And so how does one become a freedom fighter? How does one devote their life to a movement, a black freedom movement, black liberation movements? What moves you from self-interest, from the idea of just focusing on you and yours to focusing on a larger community? That story for Sister Coco takes us back to her childhood home in Newport News, Virginia. I was born Dorothy Jean McQueen, the youngest of three children born to Aldora and Joseph McQueen from Maxton, North Carolina. They came, my dad came to Newport News to get to find employment. Living in Maxton, North Carolina wasn't much that black people could do, especially young black people. So he set out for bigger and better places. And there was the world's largest shipyard at that time, right there in Newport News, Virginia. And um, in the center of a military base, there was Air Army, Fort Eustis. There was Langley Field, Air Force. Uh, forget what the Navy was, but all of it was represented there because of its, its location. So Newport News had, had, had something going on for it. Sister Coco was born in the 1940s and grew up in the 1950s in a black community called Newsom Park. It was a segregated place, but it wasn't desolate. As you'll hear, Sister Coco experienced a vibrant social and cultural life, and it was a particular kind of black experience that was nurtured in part by the local military bases, which created many, many more economic opportunities for black people than would have been usual. So tell me about little, little Jean McQueen, at your family's store and other businesses? 
Well, all of us worked, all of us, meaning the three children, worked in the store after school and before school. And as I said, I was youngest. So by the time I got to high school at 13, my brother was 17 going into his senior year. So he was gone most of the time of my high school period. So it was my sister and myself. We would leave home in the morning and go to the store to open it for my mom and, you know, do sales until the bus came to take us to school. We lived very close to the store. It was called Joe's Corner. And uh, on one side, it was a grocery store. Then there was another door on the outside that took you to the little soda fountain. So we would have to go there after school and, you know, work the store. Where'd you go to school? I went to um, a neighborhood school at first called Newsom Park Elementary. And Newsom Park now is, uh, doesn't exist, but it was a, a wonderful school that was created for an area primarily made up of ex-military uh, barracks. As, as they moved out of the areas, I guess, they used the uh, housing for other purposes. It could be said in the slum, in the projects, they were projects, but some of the most accomplished black people of the area lived there. I don't know if I mentioned to you, but the movie Hidden Figures with Taraji P. Henson playing the role of Miss Katherine Johnson. We grew up with her and her children, and uh, it was, she was Miss Goebel at the time. Her children were Goebel. So, you know, they were some of the um, more accomplished people of our community, but we all lived and grew up together. Going back to Mrs. Johnson at that time, Miss Goebel, who worked at uh, Langley as a human computer, she was encouraging all of us, especially the friends of her daughters, to go into the sciences. She, she worked at Langley, had been there for a very long time, and was trying to encourage other blacks who had the aptitude to do the same. So in my yearbook, what I was going to be when I grow up was an aeronautical engineer. Had no idea what it was, but I was encouraged and I was an A student in my physics class, A student in almost all my classes. And um, it was something she wanted to encourage us to pursue. You're telling me that as a child in your neighborhood, you were visiting the home, being um, academically mentored in, in some ways, right, by the NASA scientist mathematician yes. who is also in her professional life plotting the mathematics to get man on the moon, right? This is That's what you're right. saying. To Absolutely. Me. Okay, I just want to make sure that we're clocking the, the amazing <laughs> things that you're telling me in this story. So, so I know you said you were, as little Jimmy Queen, you were, you were always going to keep up. You know, if your siblings were doing something, you were going to, you were going to do it too. So tell me, right, uh, uh, about this story of, of how you learned to, to drive. Uh, Cause I think you told me something about a tractor. So please share that story. <laughs> You're right. Part of, part of that came from a need for me, an inside need for me not to be left behind. In addition to being the youngest in my family, I was also smaller than most kids my age. So I was a little girl 
who they just always wanted to leave behind. So I made it my business to learn how to do things so that if the big kids were going off to do something and I wanted to go, I would make myself useful to be able to do what they were doing or show them how it should be done. <laughs> Got me in trouble sometimes, but we lived in the 1500 block. And so uh, there was lots of grass and not a lot of roadways because it was conducive for the children. So they had these large tractors that they would come through to cut the grass. I guess they had certain days that they would do it and they would leave the tractors there overnight. So being little Jean and being curious, as I called it, people called it nosy. <laughs> I would get up on the tractors if it was left in our yard or, or up from our yard. And um, as I sang a song, I'd be pushing the gears. I didn't know they were gears at the time pushing the pedals, but the, the gear shift never really moved. It was just a, a pushing action. But every now and then I'd notice that it would move and because I was pushing my feet on the pedals. And I soon learned to see the correlation between moving that handle in a certain position and pushing my feet. So I paid attention to what I was doing and learned that if I pushed the pedal all the way in, which was the clutch, the gear would move. So after about a month or so with my experimentation and always watching my dad when he drove, I said, Dad, I think I can drive your car. He said, drive my car? I said, I could park your car. You don't have to go outside and park it. I can do it. And uh, he says, show me what you're talking about. And sure enough, I showed him. And I was the first in the house to drive after my dad. For all the good that existed in Sister Coco's home community in Newport News, there was no denying the bad. The United States White Supremacist Society could quickly morph everyday life happenings into catastrophes or tragedies for Black people. A lover's quarrel, a wrong wink or whistle, or even eyes with too much dignity all could lead to a death sentence. Reverend W.N. Redmond, as most Southern Negroes, has been an eyewitness to the vigilante system of Negro control. At 14, he remembers the punishment of a Negro father and son who had killed a white man's dog. They took him and put him in jail and they beat him. And then they got together on a Saturday. And they tied him with barbed wire, hand and feet. We put barbed wire around the neck and put the father on one side of the bumper and the Negro and the son on the other side of the bumper. They drug them all over the, the uh, town. And uh, after that, they were drugged to the neighborhood, the Negro neighborhood. They were told that this is the way that we're going to keep the Negro in this place. And they took gas, gasoline, and they poured it on them and they burned them up. There was a very interesting family that lived directly across the street. It was the Bunch family. And the son was dating a white woman, which was foreboding then. And in fact, once they were discovered, he was arrested and was given the electric chair for such a crime. 
Linwood Bunch was his name. And it really, it really did something to the neighborhood. I, I can imagine that woman being totally inconsolable for the rest of her life. They had dated for quite a while and um, there was a misunderstanding and either she or somebody in her family yelled rape. And that was all it took, it was all it took. And it, I never really understood it at that time. Well, of course I don't understand it now either, but I understand what happened, but I never really understood. It, it happened, it's already happened, it's done. You know, what, anyway, anyway. It, 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 it was a, put a chill over the entire neighborhood. Um, but that was one of the first things that happened in the 50s, late 50s. Late, one of the first things that gave me pause about this idyllic world I thought I was living in because, you know, we did things that other people didn't do. And our part of Newsom Park was, we thought was better than other parts of Newsom Park. <laughs> And um, it, it, it was the beginning of, of my thinking about things in different ways. And I never thought until just now, actually, it could have been the beginning of my days as a, a community organizer. So I did some digging and believe that the man Sister Coco is referring to here as her neighbor was 23-year-old Linwood Birch rather than Bunch. His death by electrocution by the Commonwealth of Virginia on February 17, 1961 is a public record. I couldn't corroborate Sister Coco's account about the man's wrongful conviction. The account I read charged him as a serial burglar and rapist, the rapist of three people in fact, a 49-year-old white female, a 51-year-old white female, a pregnant 17-year-old white female, which all could sound quite damning, but the official account is suspect. It's tainted by clear racism and white supremacist application of the law. So according to a report by the national nonprofit Death Penalty Information Center, between 1900 and 1969, the Commonwealth of Virginia executed exactly zero white men for rape. And in the same time period, 48 black men were either electrocuted or hung to death. The only thing I know for sure about this story of Linwood Birch was that the white accusation of rape was fatal and sexual violence against white women was used as a regular pretext for lynchings and judicial executions. And so I just have to wonder what might have really happened with Mr. Birch and if this could fall into that category.
During the early weeks of February 1960, the demonstrations that came to be called the sit-in movement exploded across the South. Within a period of two months, the movement had spread to 65 cities involving every southern state, with the exception of Mississippi. The new tactic came as a surprise, creating bewilderment and confusion in the white communities and even among the Negroes themselves. While Sister Coco worked and finished high school in Newport News, students elsewhere had begun to fight back. Black youth balked at ongoing racist exclusion and violent oppression, and they adopted a skillful protest tool, nonviolent resistance. The sit-in, which became a popular tactic, caught on like wildfire among student activists. A new phase of the Black freedom struggle was born. Sister Coco would soon find her place in this whirlwind in the fall of 1963 at Howard University. There, she would arrive just weeks after the March on Washington and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s most famous speech. She had no idea that she was about to make one of the most fateful decisions of her life. You know, it was just new to me. Uh, when I got to campus at Howard, um, I recall the first time I walked from Douglas Hall, which was my, my dorm, which is the dorm that's closest to the main campus. Uh, it, it, it just was, I don't know how to describe it. I was so excited. And um, there was so much going on. It, it, it was, it was, September, the fall, but kids had come back from the summer. They were wrapping up things they had done. There were students there who had been active all summer. Some kids had not gone home. And it was interesting to me to just see all of it. And the main thing that was going on that I did understand and I got involved with immediately was they were gearing up for Freedom Summer, Freedom Summer, Freedom Summer. And that takes us to the end of today's episode. Stay tuned for more of the disappearing of Sister Coco. In our next installment, we'll find out how a talented but humble Jean McQueen joins the Black Freedom Movement, transforms into Sister Coco, and reshapes the course of her life. This has been a special production for Humanities DC's Porch Tales. I'm guest producer Professor D. Boos alongside DJ Influence. If you enjoyed this show and want to hear more, check out my regular podcast called The Self-Determined Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, history, art, activism. Be about it. Did you enjoy this episode of Porch Tales? Tell a friend about it. Make sure you're subscribed so you can know about future episodes and consider leaving a review. Porch Tales is produced by Humanities DC in partnership with history, culture, and arts experts and doers in the district. If you would like to share your DC story, find out more about what we do, or help support our programs, 
visit us at humanitiesdc.org, email us at info at wdchumanities.org, or follow us on social media. This season is made possible due to funding from National Endowment for the Humanities and their A More Perfect Union initiative, commemorating the upcoming 250th anniversary of the founding of the United States.